you can do something and you have to. You have to. And the more possibilities you have, the more privileges you have, the more responsibility you have to use those for those who don't. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Working in the international development sector is complex. From the outside, it can seem like an exciting, adventurous life, living in places that are perceived to be dangerous or hard. But for humanitarian workers, it's not always easy, especially for those working in conflict zones or emergencies. Burnout and PTSD are common and often left untreated. It's also common for humanitarian workers to ask themselves whether what they are doing is really helping. It can be easy to get caught up in the delivery of projects and ignore the bigger questions about effectiveness, impact and ethics. My guest today chose not to ignore those questions and not to accept the status quo. Taking a sabbatical from her long career in the sector, Cornelia Walther decided to explore these questions in detail and has recently published the book Development, Humanitarian Action and Social Welfare. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Cornelia. Thank you. First of all, I'm going to ask you something all my guests get asked, what does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? It means to eventually become your own best self and share that version with the world. And how would you say that you express that in your daily life over time? It's an ongoing journey. And I would say, looking back, I came from showing to ruling to doing to showing how to do so i started off as an actor thinking that we could show people how the world could be and then everybody wants to do it and then i realized well it's always going to be in a bubble so i became a lawyer thinking that we just have to put the right rules and then everybody is just going to conform to what's good for everybody And I realized, well, having to do something is not the same as wanting to really do it. So I turned those chapters and I went to the field. And over the past 20 years, I've been working as a humanitarian in various crisis scenarios. And then in 2019, I decided it's time for radical change. And I took a sabbatical to put on paper a new perspective of approaching this question that pursues us all of find meaning in life. But finding that meaning in the end goes through giving meaning to others. There are, and I guess that's going to come up in this podcast, There are three books that came out last year and two that will come out next year. So I think there is clearly an appetite out there in the world that is still unsatiated. Cornelia, you have a long history of working with organizations such as the UN in West Africa, Afghanistan and Haiti. What led you into this career? When I think back about me as a child, there was never 
that watershed moment. I just always felt that I can't take the world as it is because it's not fair. So I always wanted to change something. And it sounds so naive and far off to say, I want to change the world, right? But somehow I always felt I need to at least try it. And so working with these organizations that have the vocation to do it seemed a very straightforward path. You said you took a sabbatical in 2019. It seems that, I guess, over time you started to question your role in doing good through your job. What was it that led you to that ultimate decision to take time out? There were two reasons for it. The first one was indeed that over the years I have been asking myself a lot of uncomfortable questions. And once you start asking yourself questions about your own role within a system, you find yourself like wearing a wool pullover and you begin pulling a thread until eventually you are unraveling and you're standing naked. And that's pretty cold out there. And I just came to the point where I questioned not only myself, my role, but the quiz, the system that I was part of. And I was wondering if I'm really bringing the added value that I could bring or if I was just staying because it had so become part of my identity and it because I just liked the whole being part of something so much that I kept on doing what had become something that was not really the thing for me and for the world. And the second reason was that I have been thinking and working for the past decade, more or less, as a continuation of my PhD on this question of how can we make people want to do good? And that has led me to Pusey, this paradigm that is subject of the books. And I always ask myself, if I came under a truck tomorrow, what would I regret not having done? And one of these regrets was to not having put that on paper and shared it with the world. And we never know when the next truck comes. So it seemed that taking a sabbatical is an unpleasant step to take, but better take it before you can't take it any longer. I'm interested in that first reason and digging into that a little bit more. Obviously, these questions were growing for you over time. You know, what is my place in the system? Am I really doing good? Am I really helping? Was there a moment where you it hit you that you had the answer and that maybe you weren't doing good or as good as you thought you were doing? I think it's just an overall unease that settled in and that became stronger over time. Just because when you live in places that have a very bad image at the outside and that are always stereotyped as places of horror, of violence, of poverty, etc. But when you live there and in each of the places where I worked, I stayed between three and four years, you 
become more familiar with the complexities. And as you familiarize yourself with the complexities and also the underpinning beauty and courage of the people, those so-called beneficiaries, you naturally come to the conclusion that, well, if the challenge is so complex, then the answer can't be that simple of just giving something, of just putting out something there. But the answer must be as multifaceted and as personal as the challenge on the table. And I think that's what then led me to Jose, this aspect that each of us carries a piece of the solution. And in the moment where we don't realize that, that we need to bring our own self to the table, we're part of a problem because we're just perpetrating a system that is maybe shaped to be good, but that eventually becomes a problem because it's automated. Do you think your experience was unusual in this regard or is it something that most of us in the sector experience but many choose to ignore and just stick to the status quo for whatever reason they have? I think it's the latter. And I still remember when I spoke to colleagues that I'm intending to take time off that not one told me, oh, wow, really? Oh, I can't understand that. But without exception, everybody said, I so wish I could do the same, but I have a family, I have this, I have that, I have this, or I'm about to retire. So there was not one person who questioned my decision. It was more this desire, oh, I wish I could, but actually I can't. And think we all have this when we're part of a system and in particular when it is a system and in the humanitarian space that is very common that it is the professional sphere is part of your personal identity you become a humanitarian it's not you do it as a job from nine to five and then you leave it there. But it is something that is your passion that has at one point been your purpose and leaving it means to question a lot of the things that are deeply, deeply part of yourself. And that makes it also something that is so challenging when we talk about reform, when we talk about changing something in the status quo because who we are and what we do is so deeply intermingled. I think it's important to mention that people receive a lot of positive feedback from the wider community, from their family, and their reputation is intrinsically linked to this idea of them being a humanitarian, which in many people's mind equals a good person. Why do you think it's so hard to acknowledge that our role and our contribution and our impact might not in fact be helping and indeed might be harming the people we want to help? And why is it so hard to question whether we're serving our own needs really or the needs of those we're proclaiming to help? I think there are various reasons. Each of us, no matter which line of work we're engaged in, but we tend to 
over over years weave a narrative about our own self about our own life about who we are what we do why we do it so we are weaving this multi-layered story that we tell ourselves that we're telling the world and in the moment where this narrative is questioned it's very painful and it becomes even more painful when it's yourself who is doing this unraveling because you know what are your painful points what are your pressure points and when you take yourself like an onion and you peel one skin after the other away you come ever closer to that vulnerable soft spot at the inside which pertains to your why am i here who am i as a person and especially in the humanitarian space this soft spot of why am i here is very closely related to our professional what am i doing so I want to go back to something you mentioned before about the kind of environments that humanitarian workers often exist in. They're exposed to events in their daily lives that are often extremely traumatic and they often live in environments where threats to personal safety are present all the time. Psychologists tell us that humanitarian workers are likely to witness traumatic events and as a result are vulnerable to having trauma reactions often. In your book, you talk about the fact that more than three quarters of respondents to a sector research had experienced mental health issues. And of those, 84% continued working untreated. What are the wider implications of this on the whole system? It's clearly a problem that has not gotten enough attention over the years, which is kind of paradoxical seeing the fact that the private sector has understood the link between doing good for your staff and bringing good performance is very closely related. And that in the end, what you do for your staff is something that you do for your own bottom line. And I think there is growing understanding in also humanitarian organizations and COVID has certainly brought that discussion forward because many humanitarians are pushed to the limits and they keep on going because they have commitment, they have responsibility, and they feel they can't drop those whom they feel are responsible for them. But ultimately, that may not be the best solution for nobody. I think the challenge here is that you can help others only if you can help yourself. And if you are unhappy inside and that unhappiness can come from various sources but the unsolved issues that you have inside you're going to throw circles outside it's like a stone that is thrown into the water has ripple effects if you find inner peace and happiness then those ripple effects will be beneficial and if not then it will be the opposite. Then you are going to replicate that in your closer environment and beyond. That's not just a momentaneous psychological phenomena like the emotional contagion, which you may be familiar with, that somebody who is in a bad mood 
has the ability to contaminate others in their surroundings, but it's something that goes far beyond that, that your own happiness, it makes you want to do happy things for others. And it's a domino effect. And it's not just sounding nice on paper. And it's not just an illustration of the Posey paradigm, but it's scientifically proven that what comes from inside is expanded outside. So why aren't humanitarian organizations and the not-for-profit sector in general prioritizing this? It's a good question and I certainly don't have the answer, but I think for many years it was just assumed that we're here to do good and that's why what we're doing is good and that's why everybody who is part of our teams is all right. So it was not, even in the private sector, it has been a very long time until organizations acknowledged that stuff is not just an ingredient like any other, but you need to carefully groom and nurture it. One of your books is called Humanitarian Work, Social Change and Human Behavior, Compassion for Change. The book details your experiences in the sector and your ideas on how to improve it. You describe it as a holistic and candid look at the interplay between purpose, people, places, and power. What are you hoping to achieve with this book and who is it for? Who is it aimed at? I hope that it leads to a paradigm shift, at least gradually. And in a way, it's this shift in perspective that there's much more that unites us than what separates us. The Posey paradigm is based on the understanding that human existence is a composite of four dimensions, soul, heart, mind, and body expressed as aspirations, emotions, thoughts, and sensations. And that these four dimensions make each of us a reflection of the society that we evolve in, which is also individuals that are part of communities, that are part of countries, that ultimately form the planet. And taking this perspective takes the far-off ambition, making the world a better place, something very concrete and abstract that begins at the core of the center with the aspiration of individuals for meaning. Once we take this understanding, it becomes very clear that the smallest possible action that an individual can take may have major ripple effects. And the COVID pandemic is the latest illustration of that. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And in the moment where we acknowledge that, that there is never, no matter in which place we are, the possibility to delegate responsibility. Because no matter who you are, what you have, and what you do, you always have the influence to change something. That's the main message, that you are never out of power, ever. And who do you think needs to hear this message the most? Everybody. It's one of those ultra-simplistic messages that has been repeated for millennia, which has been said and repeated 
in all the languages and cultures of the world, you need to do for others what you want to have done for yourself. And you can do it. You don't need to wait for somebody. You don't need an institution to dramatically change to conform to your values or vice versa. But you can do something and you have to. You have to. And the more possibilities you have, the more privileges you have, the more responsibility you have to use those for those who don't. I'm interested in something you said there about not waiting for the institution to change to match your values. In the book, you talk about how institutions with an inspirational mandate, such as the UN or other kind of big NGOs, have lost their influence and impact. Why do you think that is? Is it because of a values mismatch or is it because of the massive bureaucracy of those organisations? The values of the humanitarian sector and of the UN in particular remain today as beautiful and as valid as they were at the time of their creation. And over the years, as I've been working with them and asking myself these uncomfortable questions, I repeatedly asked myself if I still want to be part of it. And I always came back to the bottom conclusion, there is no other employer these days in the world where I feel so fully that my personal values and the aspiration of my employer are aligned. So I think the overall framing is today still as valid as it was then and today still as beautiful and powerful as it was then. The challenge that I see is that there is often something that it becomes an abstract value construct that is not lived day by day by day, that is not felt, breast, eaten and implemented. That it is something, yes, it's there, it's on paper, but it's taken as a given. It's not something that is questioned and kept organically alive that is meandering through daily action. And I think that is the challenge, that it's not the same to have a list of wonderful values on paper and to question them, to really pull them apart and think, what do they mean to us today? And how can we keep them alive for us, but also for our partners and for those whom we work for and with. How do you do that in an organization with 110,000 staff around the globe? It's a huge challenge. And I certainly do not pretend that I have an answer that many more and much smarter people have been thinking about for very many years. But I think the key question is to pursue the institutional change and the individual change in parallel rather than having the either or because it's a chicken and egg question right we always tend to say oh it's the fault of the system but well the system was made of individuals and it's perpetrated by individuals and the individuals are part of 
an overall functioning that helps them perpetrate certain behavior patterns that are maybe not conducive to the value unfolding. So I think the two need to come or need to be pursued simultaneously because they nurture each other. Coming back to uh, the two-sided spiral that turns from the inside out and from the outside in. For me, four questions that are very important in that sense are the four questions that derive from Jose, which are the why are you here? Who are you as a person? Where do you stand in life? And what are you doing to align your aspirations and your actions? Differently said, purpose, personality, position, and proactive stance in life. And these four questions, when you really seriously answer them, then they put you in front of a lot of answers that you had maybe put under the table. And if you take those serious and really seek to distill them down to the weak spots, then they confront you with conclusions to be taken because you can't unsee what you have noticed in yourself. And if stuff on larger scale would go through this exercise, if you like, that would be a very good point of departure. And in the end, it sounds like one of those huge challenges where you don't know where to start and that's why you don't do it because it just seems like this huge thing where you lose your appetite before you even pick up the fork but if there were small pools of people who start thinking differently and who question then you have the cumulating effect yeah absolutely so cornelia What's next for you? Have you come to a conclusion about whether you want to return to the sector as an employee or do you want to continue exploring this work outside of the system? I don't know. I still believe that if there's one place that can make a difference, it's the UN, just because it's so big, because it has the vocation to do so, because it has theoretically speaking, the means and the people. So I still think that there is a huge potential out there that is unfulfilled. And if there's anything I can do to help further that potential, then I will do whatever I can. But the world is so big and so complex. And what I certainly have learned over the past years is that the first step is to let go of this ambition of having control over everything. And that things happen at exactly the time where they need to happen. So I, I don't know. What is currently my big aim is to connect like-minded thinkers and doers. Because there are a lot of people who think that the world needs to change. And it's not something that you can expect from governments, that you can expect from organizations or from anybody else, but it's something that involves your own self. And so that is my hope, my, my dream, 
that ever more of us will connect and put our energy and thinking into a same space to expand that energy. Cornelia, who has been your greatest influence in doing good and why? There have been many people. I think I have been extremely lucky over the years because the people who enter our lives, they are our teachers, our messengers, our guides, right? And I don't have a role model in that sense, but I met people just in everyday life who made me feel that, yes, it's possible to do good to somebody else without expecting everything in return. And meeting those rare individuals is just a very precious gift that reminds you that goodness is not an abstract concept. And altruism and compassion is not something that we write about and that sounds nice, but it's something that is organically breathing. And I think those are my role models. Those people who just met me, loved me, respected me, and just took me in their heart. Yeah, I love it. A philosophical question now. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? Disconnection. This paradox that we're all living through that on the one hand, we're supposedly ever more connected because of our devices. And the world is ever smaller in the sense that you can know through the internet what's going on nearly everywhere, right? But that in the same time, people are ever more alone and alone very often in the sense of being lonely without wanting to acknowledge it. So we keep ourselves busy and occupied, but that is not the same as being fulfilled. And I think one of the key challenges in that is the fact that we are afraid of being alone because that's where the questions arise from the inside. The questions that I mentioned before this, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Who am I actually? And unless we come to be comfortable with that space of being alone, we are facing a big void individually and collectively because it's only when you're good alone that you can be good with others. Yeah, I agree. I agree. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, what would it be? Everything is connected and every one of us can be changed. But for that to happen, we need to acknowledge and address what needs to change in ourselves. Cornelia, where's your favorite place on earth? I don't have one. I have been very, very lucky in the configuration of my personality. Wherever I have been, I felt at home. And the important part is that I find something, that I'm doing something that I feel makes sense and that I'm passionate about. But I've been in Congo, I've been in Afghanistan, I've been in Haiti, I've been in Chad. I've really been in some of those places which people hear about and they are like, oh my goodness, no. And I had the most beautiful encounters in these locations. I had 
coffee in Haiti. I had tea in a tea house in Afghanistan. I have been on a market in Kinshasa. And everywhere I met these people where you feel like, well, we're all the same, right? Yeah, so I, I don't have the favorite place yet. Into Australia and I loved it. <laughs> I love it here too, especially right now. <laughs> Cornelia, what book are you reading at the moment? I'm rereading a book. One of my all-time favorites is Thinking Fast and Slow of Daniel Kahneman, which is about behavioral economics, behavioral insights. And it's just one of those books that I have read many years ago and which has influenced quite a bit of my thinking and this understanding that it's not enough to inform or even to motivate, but that you can understand how the brain works and you can use that in order to induce certain behaviors. And yeah, it's just an old time classic for me. Wonderful. What about podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? Rarely. I must say right now, my dad's at the hospital and I'm rushing a bit between clinic and home and juggling various things and also finishing the next book. So I must honestly say I love yours. <laughs> Thank you. And I very much like behavioral grooves. But other than that, I'm not a regular podcast listener. Tell us where we can find your books. My books are A, on the Macmillan Palgrave website, and I'm happy to send you the links. They are also, the references are on the Posé website, https www.posé.beingchanged.com. P-O-Z-E? Yes, that's another one which is shorter, which is posé.cc. Great. Excellent. Well, Cornelia, it was a pleasure having you on. I've loved our conversation. I think you are absolutely spot on in this idea of individual and collective responsibility for changing things both within ourselves and the systems that we operate in. I appreciate your insight and I can't wait to read the next book. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of the Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.